So as has already been said, last weekend was Youthquake. Uh, I think we all survived. Some of us maybe a little more easily than others. Uh, but there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot that goes on. And uh, that Monday off afterwards, I think, is kind of a mixed blessing. It gives everybody a chance to rest. But then you've only got four days to try to put everything back together. And I know even this morning, we were scrambling around a little bit, trying to find this and that, and where did it go in the intervening days. I think it's kind of amazing, all that has to go in to making Youthquake actually happen. There's all this logistics and coordination and administration that goes on behind the scenes that most people never see. All right, getting bands and speakers, to say nothing of over 1,200 young people here. They've got to house them. They've got to feed them. It's a lot of work. It's a big weekend. And it's an important weekend for this community. I know lots of you served in different capacities, doing security. Uh, you had small groups that you were leading. You were some of you on the Youthquake team. It goes on and on and on. I led the prayer team, which was, all things considered, a, a pretty light time commitment, uh, with the emphasis on kids making commitments and connecting with their youth groups afterward. There isn't a lot for the, the prayer team to do at the front. We've kind of gotten away from, from kind of making commitments there, and we want kids to make commitments uh, in their youth group so that their youth pastor will be there next week for them when they have questions. But there still, there still are a number of young men or women that, that aren't here with the youth group. Maybe they came alone. Maybe they came with friends. They need someone to pray with. Uh, but it's not that big of a commitment for me. But still, uh, I was there, and it was good to be a part of it. You know, part of running a weekend like Youthquake as I said, there's a lot of logistics behind the scenes, and, and people that run it have to determine who can go where and who can do what. So the main sessions, I know many of you were here last Sunday. Main sessions are open to anybody. It's public. Anybody can just walk in. You can go to the main session and hear the speaker, and it's great. Concerts and other activities, though, you need extra clearance. Uh, typically, that involves a wristband that's color-coded either for meals or no meals, and you just show that you've got the little band on your wrist that marks you out as a, a student who's attending or as a Briarcrest uh, employee. And in you go. That gets you into most of the events. However, some parts of the facility um, are still off limits. Uh, you can't just kind of go walking in anywhere that you want. Uh, unless, unless that is, you've got one of these. Some of you, some of you had these as, as part of the weekend. This is, it says here, VIP access on it. So, for instance, I wanted to go to one of the concerts, and, and I hear for you person was dutifully checking the door, and they kind of motioned that they wanted to see my wristband, and I showed that I had this pass, and the person kind of apologized to me, and no apology was really needed. Uh, they were doing their duty, and that, that's, that's a commendable thing. But the thing is, you can go pretty much anywhere if you have a VIP pass. You can, you can go to the concerts, you can go to the events, you can walk into the VIP lounge and eat the, the free chips and, and drink the free coffee. That's just what you do. You can kind of go wherever you want to, and no one can tell you that you can't be there. So today, in, in our sermon text, Jesus talks about a similar thing. This isn't a key exactly, but it kind of does the same thing. It opens doors to you that wouldn't otherwise be opened. And that's what Jesus is talking about today. He's talking about an open door. So, as is our custom, why don't we stand to hear our sermon text from God's Word. We're in Revelation chapter 3. 
This is the second last church of the seven, Philadelphia. We'll begin at verse 7, Revelation 3, 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. You can have a seat. So the location of ancient Philadelphia, it it made it an important trading city located on major routes through Asia Minor. The region around it was particularly agriculturally fertile, suitable for growing grapes. Uh, This region in modern Turkey is still known for raisins, actually, today. The main thing this part of the world had against it was earthquakes. There was a particularly bad earthquake in A.D. 70, and Philadelphia continued to be plagued by tremors, for years afterward. And that may be some of the background behind how Jesus ends this letter, talking about permanence and stability and making them a, a pillar in the temple that will be permanent and, and unshakable. That's uh, certainly quite a likely proposition. And uh, by now, we should probably be pretty familiar with how these letters work. They all kind of follow the same general format. Uh, this is number six, so if you've been here, we see Jesus. Uh, He identifies himself, usually with one of the characteristics uh, from John's vision of the risen Christ in Revelation 1. He tells the church, I know what you've been up to. Hopefully they get some praise at this point. Then he tells them, usually, that they're doing some things that are wrong or not good. And finally, he urges them towards greater faithfulness, and he makes some kind of a promise to them uh, that will be theirs in eternity. We've also noticed how some of the letters are pretty similar. Uh, Some of them are really quite similar to one another. Uh, If you remember back uh, to Pergamum and Thyatira, they were very similar. Uh, They both had problems with some parts of the church being faithful while others were getting drawn into false teaching. In both of those, the false teaching was kind of likened to something that was going on in the Old Testament, and we had to unpack that. If you remember way back to number two in this series, to Smyrna, you might notice that it has a lot of similarities to the letter today. Both of those churches were having difficulty with opposition, and it seemed that in both communities the opposition was coming from uh, their Jewish neighbors rather than their pagan neighbors, at least in part. Both of these churches did not receive any condemnation from Jesus. They were just encouraged to remain being faithful. Jesus didn't have anything against either one and only praise. So let's dig into the letter. Uh, We begin, as we frequently do, with 
Jesus identifying himself in what kind of seems like uh, something from chapter 1. Except it, it kind of is, and it kind of isn't. In chapter 1, John describes the Lord as having the keys of death and of hell, or Hades. Here, he's, he's described as having a key, but it's, it's not that. He's described as having the key of David. In both instances, the key imagery speaks of authority, and authority and access. However, the specifics are, are somewhat different. As we've often seen in these letters, and in all of Revelation, really, there are so many illusions and, and illustrations drawn from the Old Testament. Uh, they're just everywhere. Some of them are very specific. Some of them are just, you have to work a little harder. So it's, I think, important to dig into this one. Uh, it's particularly obscure. You might have wondered when Andrew was reading the passage earlier, like, what's that all? Why is he reading this weird passage? I've never even heard this passage. Uh, it might be. Some of the others were things that you might recognize a little bit more. Uh, there was mention made of Balaam, and we all remember Balaam from our Sunday school days because of the talking donkey Uh, One of the other references was to Jezebel, and you might remember that story, uh, Jezebel and and the prophets of Baal and Elijah on Mount Carmel. Kind of a familiar story, but this one is some guys named Shevna and Eliakim, and you're like, who are they even? And and even I had to kind of do a little extra research, because I don't know who these guys even are. Vaguely familiar, just for some context. Uh, These two guys were important palace officials in the time of King Hezekiah. If you remember the story, in 2 Kings 18, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, sends some of his envoys to Hezekiah, the king of Judah. And he wants to collect tribute. Judah is not conquered yet by the Assyrians, but they're, they're close to it. They have to pay tribute to the king of Assyria. And Hezekiah has basically gotten all the money out of the royal treasuries he can. He started taking gold and silver from the temple to try to pay off the king of Assyria, and he's out of money now. And the king of Assyria sends some of his lackeys, and Hezekiah sends a couple of his guys out to meet these envoys, and these guys are Shevna and Eliakim to speak to the delegation from the king of Assyria. Not much is said about either of them. It just sort of records the conversation. It doesn't evaluate one as being bad and one as being good. But then we have this passage from Isaiah 22 where we get a different story. Shevna is not spoken of favorably at all. The Lord, via the prophet Isaiah, condemns him for taking care of his own affairs rather than tending to the more important matters that have been going on in the land. It seems that maybe he's been, doesn't say specifically, but he's carved himself a pretty fancy tomb in the rock. My suspicion would be he's probably been expropriating funds from the royal treasury to to pay for it. Might be what's going on in the background. Hard to say. But in any case, the Lord is not pleased for him for building himself this, this elaborate tomb, like he's somebody really, really important. Isaiah says, what have you to do here, and whom, and whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock, behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wild land. 
There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, the shame of your master's house. So, not good. He's evaluated negatively. The consequences are coming. He's going to be going. He sounds like he's going to get taken into exile. Not good. He's going to be replaced. Is what's going to happen. Eliakim will be blessed and prospered. He seems to have been kind of the second-in-command guy. He's going to be replacing him. Isaiah goes on, I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. So there's our connection. It's actually one of the few places in Scripture where keys are mentioned. So I think it's pretty significant that we spend this time looking at this rather obscure connection. Especially because it's basically a direct word-for-word quotation from this Old Testament passage. There's got to be something going on here. So what is it? Well, at a very literal level, Isaiah is basically just announcing the consequences. This high-ranking royal official, Shevna, he's getting the boot. The guy that's sort of his second-in-command is going to be raised up to replace him. And it seems that part of this being over the royal palace, being the head administrator, there probably would have been some sort of literal keys that he would have been granted in order to do his job. Part of being the administrator of the palace was similar to what goes on here at Youthquake. You have to determine who's allowed to come in and who isn't. You grant access. And the thing about the key being on the shoulder, well, keys were not little things that you kept on a ring. They're, back then, they were great big things that you'd sling over your shoulder, maybe like we'd sling a gun or a guitar, like they're great big things you'd carry in that way. So, the key would give him authority to grant or deny access to people. It was authority to access the king, was what it basically amounted to. Oh, so, fair enough. Literal, what's going on? But look at the language. It's kind of, it's kind of over the top as to just, hey, here's a civil servant, gets fired because he was doing a bad job, new guy going to replace him. But the language is just, it's huge. Even something as mundane sounding as servant in the book of Isaiah. Servant isn't just guy who does work. Servant comes to be a messianic term for the Lord's anointed, the one who's going to do his will and, and, and rule even. And the language of fatherhood and, and authority resting on the shoulder If that sounds vaguely familiar, well, yeah, it kind of sounds like the prophecies of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9 that we read every Christmas, right? The government will be upon his shoulder. And the house of David, I mean, yeah, literally in the passage, it probably refers to the actual house, like the palace where David lived. But as, again, as Isaiah progresses on, the house of David comes to me, not the, the physical structure, but the family line, the dynasty, the lineage of King David. It comes, so this isn't just talking about literal authority over a physical building. It's talking about something much bigger, much grander, moving on throughout history. 
doesn't just mean the structure, but the family line of King David, from whom David's true successor one day is going to come. It seems that Isaiah here, as he so often does, he's moving beyond just the literal thing that's happening in his own day and seeing the ultimate fulfillment of it, for which the thing in his day is just a a type or a pointer or a sign. Moving beyond what's happening in his day to what is going to happen on that day, as Scripture likes to put it. Someday the true heir to David's house will come. Someday, the true wielder of authority over David's house will come. And then, here in Revelation, it seems that John is connecting the dots. Here he is. It's Jesus. The kingship and kingdom language is here. It's just undeniable. He's the one that has authority to grant access or to deny it. Not just to an earthly palace, but to the very presence of God himself and the people of God. And that's Jesus who can do that. This will be important as we continue to examine the letter. So we've looked at that kind of obscure Old Testament imagery a bit. So let's take a look at the related but somewhat distinct language in the second verse of this letter. The, The stuff about the open door in the next verse. So we see the similarities. Jesus has the key of David with which he can open and nobody can shut. He can shut and nobody can open. The church has before them an open door, which it says no one can shut. Now there are a few other places in Scripture where uh, the language of an open door is used. Acts 14.27, 1 Corinthians 16.9, 2 Corinthians 2.12, Colossians 4.3. All these passages describe a unique opportunity for God's people where the Holy Spirit grants them a, a particularly fruitful season of, of ministry or mission or evangelism. So we probably should ask, well, is that what's going on here? Possibly, but it seems it's not exactly just a, a one-to-one connection. Most of those passages are from Paul's letters. We, we probably should also look at what John has to say about a door. And I think John 10 is kind of instructive in this. In John 10, Jesus describes himself as, as the gate, or, or very literally as the door for the sheep, so that they can enter the sheepfold. He even mentions there in verse 16 that he has other sheep that are someday going to come and join the sheepfold, and he will be the door for them to come in. Of course, referring to the Gentiles. So this this passage in Revelation, it seems to be a a fulfillment or an affirmation of that that Jesus said he was going to do in, in John's gospel. Jesus has the keys of access, and so he opens the door into God's kingdom for all people. Not just Jewish people because of their ethnic ancestry, but for all, pagans and Gentiles and Jews, all alike. The door into the kingdom is not tradition, it's not the law, it's not all the things like that. It's Jesus himself and his saving work that opens the door to come into the kingdom. So, of course, the door is an ideal picture of God's kingdom mission in the world, though. God's God's people granted access through the door that is Jesus into his kingdom, but then also God's people going out on mission 
to bring more people in through the door that is Jesus, into his kingdom, into the people of God. Bring in new people in, Gentiles and pagans and all kinds of people that no one would have ever initially imagined could be part of God's kingdom, now can be. New kingdom isn't centered around tradition or the law or ethnic ancestry. It's centered around Jesus, and the access into it is Jesus. Now, this might seem pretty straightforward, but it's crucial for the rest of the letter. It's crucial for us, too. You know, missions or evangelism, it's not an end in itself. Let's remember, when we do missions or when we do evangelism, we're not, we're not trying to convert people just to a, a set of propositions or doctrines or to an idea, as important as, as doctrines are. We're drawing them in through the open door that is Jesus into the redeemed community of the people of God that's centered around the person of Jesus Christ. By this point in our series, as I said, the pattern should be pretty familiar. Jesus begins his main body of his address to his church like every other one. I know. So what does Jesus know about this congregation? He knows two things. He knows, first of all, that they have not very much strength. And he also knows that they're doing well in spite of that. They've stood firm in their faith. They've kept his word. They've not denied his name. This sort of reversal pattern should be pretty familiar to us by now. The same thing happened in the church in Smyrna. They were, the Bible tells us, poor But Jesus says, well, actually, you're rich. We looked at at Sardis last time, right? You have a big name of being alive, but actually, you're dead. Next week with Laodicea, we're going to see it's the reverse of Smyrna. Smyrna was, they were poor, but Jesus says they were rich. Laodicea, they think they're rich, but Jesus says they're poor. And here, it's, it's the same kind of reversal. You think you're weak, you feel weak, but actually, you're standing strong. You know, the, what counts in God's kingdom is actually and often the reverse of what we think counts in the world. Standing firm usually happens in the context of opposition, and that's the case here. Interestingly enough, though, in some of the other communities that these letters were written to, the opposition seemed to come primarily uh, from the Roman world and the pagan world, either emperor worship or the, the pagan mystery religions that were exerting influence on these people. Here, it seems different. It seems that it comes from the Jewish people who don't accept Jesus. And that's this challenging language. In our time and place, we can read a phrase like, they're the synagogue of Satan, and we got all kinds of alarms going off, right? We're seeing KKK hoods and Hitler salutes, possibly, right? Because anti-Semitism has been such a thing. And let me say, anti-Semitism is evil and to be avoided. It is not good at all and should be opposed. Of all the other religions, the Jews are the most closely related to us because it's from the Jewish faith that Christianity grew. Of course, it was that close relation that seemed to be such a problem in some of these communities initially. I mean, basically all of the first Christians were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. John, who wrote this, was Jewish. St. Paul was Jewish. These early believers saw Jesus as their promised and long-awaited Messiah and the fulfillment of Israel's hopes. 
problem was not everybody saw it that way. Uh, there were plenty, uh, you don't have to look very far. It was the Jewish people, after all, that put Jesus to death. In the book of Acts, uh, it's the, unfortunately some of the Jewish temple officials and other leaders of Israel who get in on persecuting the Christians long before the Romans ever get around to it. It seemed that for some of the Jewish leaders, they just couldn't handle the thought that Jesus was the Messiah. And they weren't prepared to accept that, that this was the way their religion was to go. They saw the Christians, the followers of Jesus, as a, as a dangerous and heretical sect that needed stamping out. So initially, while Christianity was sort of viewed as a, a sect or a denomination within Judaism, before long there came to be a parting of ways. The Jewish people were clear that the Jesus followers were not part of their religion. And the Christians... I think with sorrow, if, if the Apostle Paul is any example, had to admit the majority of the Jewish people were not going to be part of their faith community because they wouldn't accept Jesus' claims that he was the Messiah. So as Christianity began reaching out to more and more Gentiles, that divide, unfortunately, only widened. And sometimes hostilities brewed, even serious ones. Now, unlike what was to happen later in, in Europe, or even American society. In many of these communities, it was not the Jewish population that was the persecuted minority. It was the Christian population that was the persecuted minority. So that seems to be what's going on in the background of this. But against all this, Jesus, through the Apostle John, assures these struggling Christians they're not on the wrong track. The Jewish people might center their beliefs and hopes around their traditions and their law and their temple, but those aren't what defines God's people in the new age that's dawning. Those things are not the keys that bring you into the presence of God and into his kingdom. It's Jesus. So the synagogue authorities in this community, they might uphold themselves as, as orthodox. They might uphold themselves as they have the truth. They might even persecute the Christians as heretics and dangerous. But it's they who are mistaken. They don't hold the keys that determines who gets in. Jesus holds those keys. And he assures his followers of that. Christians in Philadelphia are, are commended for standing firm in the face of opposition. And they are urged to continue standing firm. This is, this is really one of the, the simplest letters of all the seven. The church receives only praise in a pretty straightforward sort of a fashion. Stand firm in the face of opposition and even persecution. You're doing good. Keep on standing firm. Jesus doesn't mention anything against them, as I said. They're just urged to keep standing firm. That's what it boils down to. We've called this series, Don't Stop Believing. I think I've tried to make it clear that believing here isn't just thinking the right thoughts in your mind or signing off on the right doctrinal statement of what you believe. Uh, Believing means more than that. It means trusting. It means remaining faithful. Or to put it another way, believing means living like you actually believe. Right? It's not enough just to think the thoughts in your head. If you really believe them, they will influence the way you act. And so Jesus says to this church, it's feeling pressure. Don't stop believing. Don't stop trusting. Hold on. Find your identity in me. He has only praise for this church, but he makes it clear that they need to continue holding fast 
and standing firm. They haven't arrived yet. Just because Jesus doesn't have anything negative to say about them now doesn't mean that they're out of danger and in the clear and already home. Right? Even a faithful church can turn aside from that. Even a faithful church can, can slide into apostasy, compromise, disobedience. There's a certain permanence and steadfastness in the language Jesus uses here. The one who endures, the one who keeps standing firm, the one who holds fast, will in the end have the reward of being made a pillar in the temple of God. Of course, it's a picture or an illustration. I don't, I don't think he actually means that when you get to be with Jesus in eternity that your eternal lot will be turn into a temple pillar, but it's a picture. What do we know about pillars? It's not that difficult of a picture, actually. Pillars are strong. Pillars are strong because they have to be. They hold things up. Look, look around here. There's a whole bunch of pillars. They're holding up the roof so that it doesn't fall in on us. I think anybody that's ever done home renovations, you kind of understand this, right? There are... What is it that you don't ever want to knock out of your home? A load-bearing wall. You need to leave that load-bearing wall alone or you have to make some significant modifications because something has to hold up the roof. You know, you can't just knock that out or bad things are going to happen. Whatever's holding up the roof has to be there, has to stay there, it has to be permanent. You can't just remove it. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. He's going to make them something that's permanent and stable and strong and that will remain. If you stand firm under pressure now for a little while, Jesus says, I will establish you and make you strong permanently, supremely, eternally. And that's a beautiful thing. In the time that remains to us... I just want us to look at again at, at the image of the open door in light of, in light of the exhortation to stand firm and hold fast. First of all, I'd, I'd just like to take a moment to address what can happen when holding fast or, or standing firm goes bad. Because I think it can. There's a, there's a very real danger that, that holding fast or standing firm can turn very fearful, very uh, inward-focused, can become bitter. People that develop this mindset are not so much holding fast to what they have in Jesus as they are holding on to the way things are, or even worse, the way things were, the way things used to be. And among people who develop this mindset, there can be a lot of suspicion against others who might do things a bit differently. We see this in some churches that draw the boundaries in tighter and tighter and tighter and get more suspicious about anybody outside that, oh, they're not real Christians, only we are. And it keeps shrinking inwardly. And they exclude faithful brothers and sisters who may differ from them in only slightly, slight secondary issues. Or even they just might use different language for what is basically the same thing. We see it in churches who, who stubbornly keep doing things the way they've always done them and they get bitter as, as maybe their churches shrink some. We see it in churches who are honestly quite doctrinally upright but have become fearful and, and inward focused 
and aren't really doing anything for God's mission in the world, either in their own neighborhoods or, or further afield. They're just trying to protect what they have, often out of, out of fear that it might be taken away. Remember when we looked at, at the first church, Ephesus, and we talked about how going back to doing the first works, it isn't just a, an exhortation to go back to doing things the way you used to do them. It's not go back to the good old days, go back to doing things in an old-fashioned manner. It's go back to doing the things that really matter. Going back to doing the things where you love God and love others. Our call is, is, is not to hold on to methods. Our call is not to never change. Our call is to hold on to Jesus. Perhaps the image of the open door can be helpful here. What does the text tell us about the open door? Where is the open door located? It says the open door is before you or in front of you, depending on what translation you have. It's in front of you. That's significant. Right? It, it's not something that you, you go back through, you go backwards. The open door is in front of you. You go forward. You keep going forward. You keep making progress. You go through it because it's ahead of you. Let's just remember what we talked about at the beginning. In Acts and in the letters of the Apostle Paul, the open door image seems to refer to an opportunity for effective ministry. Here the language surrounding the, the key of David seems to indicate that the open door is access that Jesus grants into his kingdom and into his people. These aren't mutually exclusive. Jesus holds the keys that grant us free access into his kingdom and the redeemed community he's creating. So given that reality, that we've been given free and open access into his kingdom, what should our response be? The only response I can think of that makes any sense is if we've been given this access through the open door, we should hold that door open for others so that they can come in too. Right? The only proper response is, is to live in touch with the Spirit and where he's working and what he's doing we see where he's at work and we go there and we hold that door open so that other people can come in and experience the transformed life of God's kingdom people. We must remember that open door is in front of us. The direction is forward. It's not to fearfully cling to what we have, lest it, be, lest it slip away. It's move forward into the work that God is calling us into. Now, if you've been, if you've been around here any length of time, you'll probably know my, uh, my fondness for the Narnia stories by C.S. Lewis. Many of us will be familiar with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Many of us might think that we are indeed trapped in Narnia, where it will be winter for a hundred years. Um, right? But you know the story. Some children from our world, they find this, this doorway in a wardrobe that takes them to the, the, this world called Narnia one day while they're playing hide-and-seek. And that's just the beginning of the comings and goings between Narnia and our world, and there's more stories. Later on, some other children uh, set out on a similar adventure. Their names are Eustace Scrub and Jill Pole, and they go to this English boarding school uh, where, unfortunately, as, as you do at English boarding schools, you get picked on a lot, it seems. Seems to be how it always works. Uh, so here, that's where we pick up the story. I'm just going to read, read a couple pages here. I feel like, like, maybe I need a chair here. I'm just going to. 
Wish I'd brought my rocking chair from my office, but this will have to do. All right. Let's read a couple pages here. Why were you so different last term, said Jill presently. Ah, a lot of queer things happened to me in the holidays, said Eustace, mysteriously. What sort of things, asked Jill. Eustace didn't say anything for quite a long time. Then he said, look here, Paul. You and I hate this place about as much as anybody can hate anything, don't we? I know I do, said Jill. Then, I really think I can trust you. Well, that's good of you, said Jill. Yes, but th- this is really a, a terrific secret, Paul. I say, are you good at believing things? I mean, things that everyone here would laugh at. I've never had the chance, said Jill, but I think I would be. Could you believe me if I said that I'd been right out of the world, outside this world, last holidays? I wouldn't know what you meant. Well, don't let's bother about worlds then. Supposing I told you I'd been in a place where where animals can talk and where there are, are enchantments and dragons and, well, all the sorts of things you have in fairy tales. Scrub felt terribly awkward as he said this and got red in the face. How did you get there, said Jill. She also felt curiously shy. The only way you can. By magic, said Eustace, almost in a whisper. I I was with two cousins of mine. We were just whisked away. They'd been there before. Now that they were talking in whispers, Jill felt somehow it was easier to believe. Then suddenly a horrible suspicion came over her, and she said, so fiercely that for the moment she looked like a tigress. If I find you've been pulling my leg, I'll never speak to you again. Never, never, never. I'm not, said Eustace. I swear I'm not. I swear by, by everything. When I was at school, one would have said, I swear by the Bible, but Bibles were not encouraged at Experiment House. All right, said Jill, I'll believe you. And tell nobody? What do you take me for? They were very excited as they said this, but when they had said it and Jill looked around and saw the dull autumn sky and heard the drip off the leaves and thought of all the hopelessness of Experiment House, it was a 13-week term, and there were still 11 weeks to come. She said, But after all, what's the good? We're not there, we're here, and we jolly well can't get there. Or can we? That's what I've been wondering, said Eustace. When we came back from that place, someone said that the two Pevensey kids, that's my two cousins, could never go there again. It was their third time, you see. I suppose they've had their share, but he never said I couldn't. Surely he would, surely he would have said so, unless he meant I was to get back. And I can't help wondering, can we? Could we? Do you mean do something to make it happen? Eustace nodded. You mean we might draw a circle on the ground and write things in queer letters in it and stand inside it and recite charms and spells? Well, said Eustace after he'd thought about it for a bit, I believe that was the sort of thing I was thinking of, though I never did it. But now that it comes to the point, I have an idea that all those circles and things are just rather wrought. I don't think he'd like them. It would look as if we thought we could make him do things. But really, we can only ask him. Who is this person you keep talking about? They call him Aslan in that place, said Eustace. What a curious name. Not half so curious as himself, said Eustace solemnly, but let's get on. It can't do any harm just asking. Let's stand side by side like this, and we'll hold out our arms in front of us with the palms down, like they did in Ramandu's island. Whose island? I'll tell you about that another time. And he might like us to face the east. Let's see, which way is the east? I don't know, said Jill. It's an extraordinary thing about girls. They never know the points of the compass, said Eustace. 
You don't know either, said Jill indignantly. Yes, I do. If only you didn't keep on interrupting. I've got it now. That's the east facing up into the laurels. Now will you say the words after me? What words, asked Jill. The words I'm going to say, of course, answered Eustace. Now, and he began, Aslan, 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 repeated Jill. Please let us go into... At that moment, a voice from the other side of the gym was heard shouting out, Pole? Yeah, I know where she is. She's blubbing behind the gym. Shall I fetch her out? Jill and Eustace gave one glance at each other, dived under the laurels, and began scrambling up the steep, earthy slope of the shrubbery at a speed which did them great credit. Owing to the curious methods of teaching at Experiment House, one did not learn much French or maths or Latin or things of that sort, but one did learn a lot about getting away quickly and quietly when they were looking for you. After about a minute's scramble, they stopped to listen, and they knew by the noises they heard that they were being followed. If only the door was open again, said Scrub as they went on, and Jill nodded. For at the top of the shrubbery was a high stone wall, and in that wall a door by which one could get out onto the open moor. This door was nearly always locked, but there had been times when people had found it open, or perhaps there had been only one time. But you may imagine how the memory of even one time kept people hoping and trying the door. For if it should be happened to be unlocked, it would be a splendid way of getting outside the school grounds without being seen. And if you know the rest of the story, they, they find that the door is open. And they go through it, not out just outside of their school grounds, onto the fields outside the school. They leave this world that we know, the world where they have bullies and they're at this boarding school. And they get into Aslan's country. They get into Narnia. They find the door that's normally locked, strangely open to them, and they step through it into this whole new world. But there's something interesting. In, in their situation, they're getting picked on by bullies, and they were unhappy, and things were not, not going so well for them. But they don't just go through the door into a place of ease and comfort and leisure. They go through it into this world where they're given a mission to do, a dangerous mission. Right? There's, there's a prince that needs rescuing. There's dragons that need slaying. The world that they get called into is a more dangerous world than the one that they get called out of. They think they have it so bad here, and yet they're called on this adventure that is probably way more dangerous, but it's also a lot more exciting. It's thrilling. The point of this, point of reading this story is that the privilege of being called through this open door, yeah, it might... It might uh, get you away from some of the things that, that you're struggling with. But the open door is, is a call into fellowship with Jesus and his kingdom. It's not a call to leisure and ease. It's a call to action. A call to hold fast is not a call to wring our hands and mope about the state of the world. It's a call to action too. The call of the open door is a call to what are we going to do for Jesus and his kingdom? He's calling us through. What waits on the other side? What doors are open to us? And where do they lead? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this call that you have put before us. The call to hold fast and the call of the open door that's ahead of us. Thank you for the door that you have opened into your presence, into your kingdom, into the new people that you're creating around Jesus. This, this kingdom is all about Jesus. He, he's, he's what the one who forms it. 
He's the one that it's centered around. He's the, one, he's the door that is our access. Lord, we praise you for that. We praise you that that door is open to us because of what Jesus has done, because of his sacrifice, because of his conquering, powerful resurrection. And we pray that whatever, whatever you've put before us, uh, that we would hear your call to, to open that door to others, um, to show them the door that is Jesus, the door that is open into the kingdom that you're creating. Um, and in those occasions where we feel that, that we face difficulty, pressures, persecution even, that we would hear your call to stand firm. Again, not, not in a way that is fearful or bitter or inward-focused, but in a way that hears the call to adventure, to your mission, uh, to what you're doing in the world. Um, may we take seriously the open door, take seriously your call to hold fast, and take seriously your, your promise that if we hold fast now, you will establish us strong in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.